Warwick, thanks so much for coming on. Really glad you're here. Here on the pod, we have a really basic philosophy, and that is that people should they should back themselves. If you are in an environment or in a job or in a situation in your life where you have a passion that is outside what you're doing already, you should take control of the situation and you should pursue that passion and control your own destiny. And by virtue of that, what we do is we like to give people on here real stories about people who have been through that that experience themselves and help give genuine advice on how to make that a success because this has been born out of so much woolly advice from people who haven't really been through it. You know, if you want to know what it feels like to be punched in the face, ask an MMA fighter. Yeah, don't just ask the coach that's never been in the ring, okay? Um, And you are someone who I know has an unbelievable amount of experience in this space. So look, for before we get into it, imagine we're on a first date, introduce yourself to the crowd and tell me what it is that, that you do. Firstly, thanks very much for having me on the cast. And, and mm-hmm. the, the scary thing is obviously you and I going on a date. But uh, <laughs> apart from that, uh, look, I think I think there's a, I, I agree 100%, there's a, there's a lot of woolly advice out there. Um, you know, my journey, uh, if, I, if I go full circle, my journey is sort of 30 years in the making. Um, started my own company via Prince's Youth Business Trust, uh, where I, I submitted, in the UK. Yeah, yeah okay. where I, I submitted a business plan, um, and they were lucky enough, or, or they thought I was good enough, um, and gave me the money to start my first transport company, which I had for five years, and then and then uh, shut that down. Well, and let's then, not let's not let's not glaze over that. That's incredible. So you were like so, how did you? Let's 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 drill into that a tiny yeah. bit first. So you were. At the time, did you have a corporate gig at the time? No, I, I literally had come over from New Zealand and I was uh, spending a lot of time, probably 10, 12 hours in the gym and then just thought, well, I need to go and do something. Uh, so yeah. I looked around in business, uh, couldn't find anything that I liked uh, job wise. And I just thought, well, there was this opportunity that I saw when working in the hotel industry in New Zealand. And I thought there must be something similar in London. What there, was it? So there was the gap? So the gap was uh, basically after a, uh, a shift finishes after 11 o'clock at night, there was no trains, there was, or sorry, there was no trams, there was no trains, there was no yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. transport to take the staff home. So all the hotels were p- paying black cabs to go and take the, the staff home. So if you think about late shift workers, you think about all the people that are running events in hotels, you think about all these kinds of stuff. Um, and they're paying six to seven thousand pounds a month for taxi fares for all the staff to go home. So, I just thought, well, there was a service that we used back in Auckland. There must be similar in, in London. Um, so I copied the idea, moved it to London, and just went and had a chat to four of the hotels. Four of the hotels signed on the dotted line. <laughs> so, I, so I was like, okay, whoa, um, okay, Shit. I, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically, uh, yeah. now I've got to run the company. Um, so obviously the hardest thing was to um, get the decent people to, you know, that is always the hardest thing inside a business, to get yeah. the decent people to come and work with you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I funded a couple of people to get their HGV licenses or, or PSV licenses, public service yeah, sure. licenses. Sure. Um, and then, you know, we started and uh, we started making money. And that's an interesting philosophy um, on the strength of getting a £5,000 loan. Uh, leverage that with you know a couple of leases for a couple of minibuses, and then started to make sort of uh, what was it in those days? It was probably about eighteen thousand a month. 
That's insane. And you did that off of five. So you're literally like, I mean, I have this theory that every business starts with, people will say it starts with a problem, but I believe a business starts with a, a sentence that starts with phrase, either one of these phrases. Wouldn't it be better if, wouldn't it be cool if? So you're like... I, yeah, I, I think there's also, uh, there's also another phrase that comes to mind, which is, you know, I can do better. Mm. Right? So it's certainly uh, entrepreneurs look at things in a way which they take, they take the outside influence and they, they see what's in the market, but go, actually, if you put, Instead of putting A follows B follows C, if yeah. you actually put A and C together, you can make far bigger impact. Yeah, yeah, so therefore, yeah. I'm going to create something that puts A and C together and then I push it out into the market um, in the hope that A, it gets funded and B, they, they start to make money from it. Um, and I think that's where you know business today has kind of is trying to be innovative, but they've kind of lost that that ability to to look outside the ecosystem and, and really be innovative. Um, I think it's something so true that you say that, and I couldn't agree more. I believe that, you know, and actually let's go straight on to this because you're right in the heart of it. I think that the investment community now, particularly in the UK, and tell me if I'm wrong because you've got an international understanding, is they're just constantly searching for reinvention rather than innovation. Yeah. It's always like, show me what you did before, yeah, tell me about that company you just had. Can you just make another one, but 1% better or 10% better so I can be sure that I'm going to get my alpha rather than, you know, like where you were at the time. You're like, this is genuine innovation I'm doing here. I'm making something new. And you fortunately, yeah, got a little bit of money in the bank to start it off. And it didn't. It wasn't particularly capital intensive, but it's fine. But starting a software company is crazy capital intensive, right? It is, it is. And, and I think, you know, you have to have... You have to have a couple of things in your favor, which is um, if you're going to get funded in this present environment, you have to have a successful track record, mm. right? Because they look at what you did before and it's an in indicator of what you're going to do in the future. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just one of the aspects that they look at. Yeah. Um, and I think also, you know, one of the, the central pillars to anybody that's starting a company is do you know what you're talking about? Yeah. Do you understand the market you're about to go and disrupt? Do you understand it to an extent that you can navigate and then make money from that navigation? And I think the, the, the sad fact that I've seen is a lot of people start companies thinking that they've understood what the problem set is and they understand how to integrate that problem set into the market. And then they get there and they find out that they don't. And that's where... The, the kind of the pivot point happens where they start to then start to chase other things like consultancy, like yeah. they move into different types and the phases. And, and this is where I think investment people have a problem. Um, they, ha they are certainly the, certainly in the UK, a lot of the bigger venture capitalists are now stuck with such a legacy in their portfolio of companies that are stuck that are zero revenue or, or just breaking even, and they can't pull their investment out. So therefore, when you know you and I go to them now as a new venture, their earnings ratio is so high mm. because you've got to cover the liquidity of all the other startups that aren't covering it. That's the problem, isn't it? You're constantly, you're, you're almost like, every time you walk in the room, they're looking at you thinking, are you going to fix my previous mistakes? Correct. And that's your role. And if you're not, they're like, ah, it doesn't really fit the bill. And it, it's, I find that, you know, A, hugely problematic for the entire industry, but yeah. also problematic for decent companies that are starting up. You know, 
if I'm going to have to sell my business at minimum 400 million for my Series A investor to get his 5 million or her 5 million out of my company, that's a problem, right? There's such a high earnings expectation that hardly any company will get funded. Um, and those companies that do get funded, guess what? They're great companies, and they can earn they can earn money from investors, but they're not very good in the market. Yeah, you know, we both know companies where the founders are great at raising capital. We do, um, but then you look at the company, and it's literally it's grown like ten percent over two years. But they've got this aura in the market that they're great It's almost at like, um, it's kind of like property investment they're kind of yeah. doing. It's like, we'll buy this asset, which is this business, and provided it doesn't get run into the ground, next year it's going to be worth more because someone spent this much money on it. it Correct. Feels like. and it's but again, you know, we're, we're now into the seven-year cycle with the VCs, and the VCs are now raising their funds, and they're going back to the, you know, the family offices, the ultra-high net worths, yeah. and they're all flying around the Middle East at the moment trying to earn, you know, get their funds off the ground. And it must be a difficult conversation to have. You know, you've put $25 million into the fund, and we've been playing with your money for seven years yeah. and charging you 2.5% for the privilege, and all of a sudden, where's my return? What am I getting out of this? Why yeah. would I put another 25 into your new fund? Exactly, yeah. And, also, and I'm not seeing the returns that you've promised me. Correct. But the whole point of investing in startups is that you get... <laughs> well, you've got to yeah. know what you're looking for, right? Because well, investing in startups, as you know, is, is a tricky business because, yeah. you know, a good 80% of them will pivot and die and do other things, yeah. which, is, which is problematic if you're all chasing that magic 20%. Yeah. And, you know, what I think is an interesting, um, you know, way of looking at it, uh, which I haven't seen yet, but a couple of us are, are working on currently is you you take the VC model and you flip it on its head, you turn it into an M and A model. Where what, sorry, an M and A model. Okay, yep. So you fund companies that you know will be acquired by the big boys, the Microsofts, the Amazons, the yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters. Right. Um, you you know that they've got a service that can bolt into a cloud that the cloud provider then can take global. And doesn't mind spending hundred, two hundred million on buying or acquiring the company. If it's and, what, a, and, and typically, are they in those scenarios? You're looking for businesses where they're going to acquire their customer base or their technology. No, it's the technology to buy their tech, right? Yeah. Okay, so, so, so forget about the forget about the customer base because you know if you're if you're buying a company, you know, um, you know, we've had many that have come through the, the program when yeah, I was at yeah. Microsoft that that were great technology companies. Mm -hmm. They hardly had any customers, but they guess what? They sold. Yeah, because someone like Microsoft or someone like Google can literally take that startup technology because it is so innovative and then spread it right across the cloud yeah. and enable 100,000 clients instead of the 10 that the startup's trying to do. It's a really interesting strategy, actually, because if ultimately you're building a company for sale, if that's what you're doing for, because, you know, there's different reasons for running a company. And I think, you know, and everyone has their own motivations. If you want to be a bisquillionaire, that's a really good route. If you just want to, if you want a lifestyle business, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. yeah, you're not building for sale in that way. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, but that's a really interesting model. And so I think, and so, so taking a step back. So you, when you were at Microsoft, so you were seeing, I can't even imagine what, thousands <laughs> of companies. I, I think in in the four years that that I was running the program, I must have seen close to fifteen hundred companies. 
Wow. And that's across across a myriad of different ecosystems. Yeah, so yeah. across Europe, when we went to India, we'd have a look at the India companies when we went to the US. And by the time they came to you, they, 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 they were already screened. They were good companies. Yeah, they were, they were good companies. So, yeah. you know, this is, uh, you know, this is, Part of the, uh, the the problem is the funnel is so huge now. Technology, yeah. technology and cash has enabled anybody to start a business. So you can literally, with within five minutes, go to company's house, buy a limited company, yep. create a bank account through an app or whatever, yeah, yeah. and then go into a cloud provider, get some credits, and build something. Now, nobody asked the questions whether you should, but ultimately you can. You can do it. Yeah. And, and you can, if you start at that funnel, you know, a million companies down to 100,000 companies that are good, down to 1,000 companies that are going to yeah. be fundable, down to, you know, Series B, Series C and yeah. onwards. Um, and I think, you know, that whole, that whole has to solidify. So at the moment, technology is so out there. It's so available that everybody's struggling with what am I going to do with it? It's moving so fast. I can go and do things on one day. I can pivot. I can be yeah. something else on a Wednesday. And by Friday, I've got my Nirvana moment. And I think, I think, you know, if you look at that in the startup space, it's so energetic, it's so vibrant that the enterprises that are all stuck in their legacy systems and stuck in mud are looking at the startup ecosystem going, we want a slice of that. But the two don't know how to work together, yeah. and I think there, if we can, if we can find a way that these two can coalesce together, one can be a driving force for the other. Yeah, sure. Um, and you know, because the enterprise have the cash to make sure that they make wise decisions yeah. in the startup, and the startups need the cash and need the clients and all that kind of stuff. But nobody really talks to them about how they coalesce together. And I think, you know, in the in the four years that we were at the program, we had some really, really strong companies, one of which was yours, yeah. you know, which was which was they'd cracked how to make money with the enterprise. They'd cracked how to do customers properly. Yeah. And that is that is a mindset. That is a mindset of the founders. It's a mindset of the people that work within it. Uh, making sure that they have the rigor in their business, making sure that their product development roadmaps are structured in a way that gets them across the line when it comes to dealing with enterprise customers. You know, the amount of people that I've talked to inside startups that it's a point solution and then you try to embed a point solution in an enterprise and it's like going, well, what do I do now? And, and you just say, well, have you not looked at what's left and right mm. of your solution yeah. to see whether you can bolt in two or three other different areas in that business to make you a yeah. more solid offering, right? Yeah. And I understand you've got to go in, you've got to create a beachhead, and you've got to build relationships and do sure. all that kind of stuff. But the amount of people I was shocked that didn't understand how enterprises would onboard them. So, you know, you're going to sell a product to an enterprise – you literally go through procurement, you go into onboarding, then you, you, they didn't have any clue about what the security protocols were going to be, the rigor, all of the, the scope of works that was required to put that solution in the enterprise. It's a really unique problem, actually. I think it's, um, and also people find selling to enterprises quite intimidating. There's yep. like, it's an advice. So you say to yourself, look, and also if you're in that, 
you, you know as well as anyone else, like you've got, you don't want to be in that no man's land of being like a hundred k solution. You yeah, you've either there's loads of the, selling millions of your product or you're selling like in the millions. You have got to get in the sort of the million pound products. Otherwise, that no man's land. You know, you're not it's not going to work out. So if you get into that area, there's only a few people who can buy that product, right? So when I say a few, there's probably yeah, you've got the force one thousand or whatever yep. you go after. And people find it really intimidating because they'll be like, well, how do I even get into this? And then you start speaking to someone and this big company's like, yeah, yeah, this is kind of interesting. You're like, I'm going to close this in a month. It's like, no, you're not, buddy. <laughs> no, you're not. And if you're selling to a bank, that's an 18-month cycle. Yeah. yeah. And people just don't understand how complicated it is. The number of, I think, like, generally speaking, if you are selling to a bank, you probably have to convince at minimum maybe seven people. Yeah. yeah. And And then, you know, I would I would say that you know there is uh, a whole misunderstanding about how long it takes to onboard an enterprise customer as well once you've sold to them. Oh my god. So, yeah. you know, if you look at, you know, you're implementing a solution within one of the mobile operators. Yeah. How long do you does it take for a piece of technology to be embedded into someone like a Vodafone network? I don't. I'm, I'm eighteen months. Eighteen months. Right. So that's that's Damn. once you've sold the solution in, yeah. and you want to embed it into someone like Vodafone's global network. Mm. The network manager will take eighteen months to make a decision, to make a decision on whether that's going to be part of their solution going forward. Now that for me is like, well, you need three years worth of runway to even talk to that. Customer, to even have that right? customer. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think people realize that when they set out. I mean, look. So I am a huge fan of Seven Ten Enterprises. I built a career on it, right? And I think you should people should do it because there's there's lots of money there. I think it's it's one of those spaces where it's easier to innovate. And what I, let me qualify that because if you go into a bank, they're using so such old technology because they're so afraid of change. Yep. If you can compel someone to make a change, and you can, I believe there's three types of people in an organization. If you find those people who are looking for that recognition and you can give them a ticket to be more successful, which you can if you've got great technology to get them recognized, you've got a big ticket there and you've got some real money that's going to come out. Okay. Yeah, you know, it, but you've got to be ready for the time. And and also I think the that most people don't, don't realize... Um, you know, one of the things that that you've got as a as an entrepreneur with a small company, and you're you're taking your company into you know a much bigger enterprise customer is, is you're at the forefront of innovation. You're at the forefront of the industry by dint of you doing the startup, right? Correct. And a lot of the the CEOs forget that actually they're the they're the thought leaders. They should be confident in their ability to stand up in front of the customer and say. Yeah. This is the way the industry is moving. This is why our solution is is relevant. It's today. It's robust. And by the way, it will take you from legacy and future-proof your business. And if we do it right together, over the next three to five years, we'll create this many new revenue opportunities through this partnership. Yeah. Right? And stand there and be confident and deliver that message. Because ultimately, they go in there going, can I have a free POC? Oh, I know. And, and it's almost the... The, the begging mentality gives no trust, no no faith from the enterprise back to the startup. If you don't be arrogant, but be absolutely confident that your product, your service, is absolutely what that customer is looking for. But it also gives them the opportunity to 
if they should so choose to come from legacy and find a way out of that maze. Yeah. Right? Because a lot of the big companies, although they're stuck in legacy, they're deliberately kept le- in legacy by their existing suppliers because their suppliers don't want them to move off their technology. No, of course, yeah. Right? So, you, so you're fighting that, that conundrum. Mm. And if you can help the CFO, for instance, make a difference – Right, so I'm working. I'm working with a, a fintech company at the moment, which is which is smashing it amongst emerging banks. Right, okay. the reason they're doing it is they are giving the CFO and the CIO the tools to move away from legacy and the huge million dollar supply chain costs of dealing with legacy. Amazing, and these guys are signing clients left, right, and center. And they've they've cracked their methodology. They've cracked their storyboard to be able to talk to the C-suite, underwrite the next level of product offering, and also give them confidence that they can remove the legacy whilst onboarding into the cloud and moving away from legacy. I love that. And it's it, it took me twelve months to come up with that framework. Yeah. Because as you know, you know, every time you go and see an enterprise, you learn something new about the ecosystem in which you're selling to. And that adds nuance to your story. And you've got to do that. Yeah. A big thing is um <clears throat> a big thing about getting into that, and as you quite rightly said there, you know, you've got to make sure you understand the win of that customer, that individual you're selling to. What's their personal win? But you've also got to take away any kind of friction. Yeah. Because that's what fucks you when you when you work with an enterprise. Yeah. And, it's and too think, complicated to put you in. I think yeah. I think most people, you know, when when startups go and speak to enterprises, you know, they're they're first of all, they're walking, they're not walking in confidently because they're like, I need the POC, come what may, because either, awesome. either yeah. it's triggering my next funding round or it's triggering my survival or it's something. Yeah. Um, but ultimately they forget that an enterprise procurement team is a risk management engine. And if you can't get over that threshold, it doesn't matter whether you're selling gold or whether you're selling fresh yeah, air, right? Yeah. If you can't if you can't mitigate the risk of deploying your solution inside an enterprise, you'll never get deployed. And I think, you know, this is where I'm now working with companies to go back through their product cycle and go, right, let's have a look at the documentation. Let's have a look at the rigor inside the company. Let's have a look at your decision-making processes. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. have a look at your support mechanisms. Yeah. You, know, you know, when you go on onboard three enterprises, how it changes your entire business, right? All of your processes now have to be rigorous. Your decision-making has to be rigorous. And if you're in a financially or a regulated market, everything has to be Everything's completely to be structured. Right? Yeah. Um, and this is where I think that a lot of the startups that I see you know, don't have that understanding, which is, which is for me, a, a real flaw in, in understanding why the CEO started the business. Because if you don't understand the market that you're going into and the nuances of being involved in that market, you should never start the company. I think that's a really interesting point you make there, actually, because I think, you know, when, yeah, as founders, and you get to, yeah, you spend a lot of time thinking about, and I, and tell me if I'm, if you disagree here, but I, I think that you, know, you need to have a balance between trying to gain traction and trying to get your product right. But you can't, but people think gaining traction is just about, if I'm solving their problem and they hear about me and I'm articulating that, well, I'm in. That's not true. That's just the start. That's of just pain. the start of the pain. Yeah, yeah, because if you make yourself hard to buy from, mm. yeah, because the guy on the other side, of the, he's, he's like, I've got this amazing solution. Let me go and tell my boss about this. My peers, these guys are 
the, the nuts. And they're like, yeah, but how, are they are they ISO compliant? Yeah. Are they, yeah, and you're like, oh, I don't know. And then you're like, I'm looking like an idiot now because mm. I've gone and pumped these guys up and I can't onboard them. Yeah. You've got to predict that. You need to say to that customer day one, hey, buddy, what do I need to have in place now? Yeah, I, I yeah. think it's a, I think that's a really interesting point you make about predicting. You know, if you if you talk to you know CEOs in the market and you talk to early stage companies, and you tell them about you know you ask them a very very simple question: What does success look like? Yeah, nice, right? Boom. And a lot of people will will talk about having clients and having money. But there's a whole bunch of nuance underneath those two things, mm. which is, you know, nobody ever comes back to me and says, well, success for me is having the structure in my business that I can onboard customers easily. I've been through all of the rigor. I've got all my documentation lined up and I'm ready for acquisition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm ready to be acquired. Yeah. So every business that I've built has been ready to be acquired. So I look at the end game and go, how easy is it for a big enterprise to acquire me? If you make it difficult, your multiple drops. I, do you know what? That's really, that's actually brilliant because you can imagine someone's there and they're like, you know, even if you're B2C and you're saying, okay, I've got, I've got 20,000 people on my mailing list. And like, do they opt in? Mm. And you're like, oh, oh yeah, I don't know if we sort out GDPR. It's like, dude, no one's buying you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, right. You bring and, too much and risk. Then, exactly. Yeah. And all of a sudden, so it comes to you and they're like, you know, someone starts sniffing around and they're like, well, actually, it's gonna, we're probably going to lose, I don't know, maybe 75% of these through, re, you have to send out to them and say, by the way, you need to opt in. We might lose 75% of these customers. Your valuation is falling through the floor. Correct. So get that right now. Yeah, build yourself, have that rigor as you describe it. You're preparing yourself for success. But it's also, it, you prove to the market, and you prove to investors yeah. that you know what you're doing. Ultimately, you're an investable, investable organization yeah. because the management know what they're doing. Not just from a f- customer-facing perspective, but from a operational perspective. And I talk about everything either customer-facing or operational inside the business. Yeah. If you know exactly how to run your business from an operational scrutiny perspective, when you go to DD, you know, you went to DD when you yeah. did your Series B, yeah. right? So how much rigor is involved in DD? Quite a lot, right? And this is what a lot of the early guys don't understand. If you start to build your your asset library, and I, I call them an asset library because you build up your operational assets, you build up all your product roadmap, you build up all your, your HR tools. You, yeah. These are assets in the business. You build up your asset library. When it comes to Series A and Series B, it's not this big culture shock. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm helping some uh, two companies at the moment raise some money, and I sent them my DD pack. Okay. Right? What, for, for back in the day? Or no, no, this is, this is the, the DD templates that I now use on behalf of VCs. Oh, right, okay. Um, and, you know, one of the VCs said to me, you know, this is, this is a great pack. If anybody else fills this out, this will be the first time in 10 years I would have seen somebody fill this out. Oh, really? Because it, it's that comprehensive. Um, I'll, I'll email it to you after. Oh, well, I don't, thanks. But yeah. it's, uh, it's literally um, the, the, the table of contents is three pages. Wow. That's on the technology side. Then you've got an operational side, and then you've got a sales and marketing side. So each one of these documents will be end up, once you've completed them, probably near 100 pages. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? 
making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. I think there's additional value to that as well, because I know those people listen to this right now and they're thinking, what the fuck? I yeah. am not, I am too busy for this. I think there's something really in that. I always think, you. so if you're... So I, I would question, what are you busy doing? Oh, okay, well, there is that true. Because you look right. at it and you're like, look, if you've got, look, and it doesn't matter what stage you're at, if you're listening and you are, yeah, you've just, you've got some revenue, you're doing all right, you think about Series A, you think about Series B, see, whatever you're talking about, or even if you're right at the very beginning and you just need a little bit of friends and family, you... All those questions I always think are so important because they make you think about the questions that someone else is going to ask you and you're prepared for it. The last thing you want to do is be sat across the table from someone who you're asking for money from and they say to you, okay, so what's your clawback if one of your employees leaves early? And you're like, fuck, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're out. The moment you put a question mark in somebody's mind, whether they are giving you money or signing you up as a supplier, yeah, you've lost exactly yeah because you so, go to someone who doesn't have the question mark correct yeah and i think i think you know even if you're at the ideation stage you've got to think about it in a way which mm. is you know put the put the hat on the other head you know put yourself in the buying in the buying criteria yeah yeah, yeah. um you know and when when i did my um building an enterprise uh workshop at, at, at microsoft you know it was a very simple thing to do role play all of a sudden, I, I'm not the CEO of the startup. I'm the guy who's head of procurement, procuring the company, and I get fired if I make the wrong decision. That's it. Right? Yeah. Now ask the questions that procurement need to ask of the startup and see whether you can answer those questions. Because most people don't put themselves on the other side of the desk. So, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's interesting when you start to role play even at the ideation stage, because it gives you a way of thinking and it gives you a pathway to follow, which means you build more rigorous products yeah, and you build them ready for the market so you don't waste investors' time. You know, how much money is wasted pre and post seed by people pivoting, by not building the product correctly the first time, by iterating two or three mm-hmm. times before they get it right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it must be a good 80, 90%. It's a, yeah, I can't even imagine how much it is. And you, but you ask those questions, you're going to sort yourself. You're going to get yeah. there faster. Yeah, right? of and, and for me, it's you know, I look at it as an entrepreneur, which is my time is valuable. So the time I spend, if I'm if I'm working for an hour, and if I'm thinking for forty five minutes, the last fifteen minutes where I'm going to write stuff down and be be utterly productive, is the byproduct of the whole hour. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when, when you say you're too busy to do this, this and this, I, I always question, well, what are you busy doing? If you're just busy for the sake of it, then, OK, perhaps you need to look at how you, you know, you time manage and what you're doing and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, if you are sitting there going, actually, I'm taking time out to think about stuff to move forward, then that's real valid. That's that's real valid thought that mm. goes into the product, goes into the company, goes into the structure, builds the rigor. You know, I, I was watching uh, uh, an interesting uh, Netflix special on Bill Gates, um, which is which is uh, your old boss. Yeah, <laughs> um, and he used to have what he used to call a think week, where he literally go to a cabin, 
no Wi-Fi, no, no, no nothing, turn up with 10, 15 books, you know, bizarre subjects and topics and all this yeah, kind of yeah, stuff yeah. That, that lets him just naturally think about things. And it can be topics on the cloud, it can be philosophy, it can be a whole bunch of things, but it just lets, removes the noise and you just think. And from the thought comes strategic action. That's so interesting because for I mean, a couple of things. I I hate the term busy. Everyone's fucking busy. Correct. Right? And okay, and the, and we celebrate this like you say, Oh yeah, God, yeah, that 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 guy, girl, she's so busy, she's really smashing it. It's like, shut up. Okay, it's like it doesn't matter. If you go to the gym for two hours, yeah, it doesn't mean you're working harder than the guy that's gone for twenty minutes. Okay. Correct. It's just stop referring to things as being busy. Okay, it's about using your time well. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the whole thing. I, you know, I was watching an interesting, uh, you know, there's a program about a year ago, I think, where there was this whole machismo thing in the city about, you know, people were doing for 14... those of us who are listening who aren't a Kiwi. Yeah, you... <laughs> yeah, sorry, machismo, <laughs> oh, machismo. You know, okay, I'm, I'm right. being... oh, macho, is yeah, it? macho. Got it, right? got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Kiwiism coming. Um, you know, where they were, they were, you know. Everybody was talking about how busy they were, right? So they, oh, I, I smash it. I do eighteen hours a fucking day, and I just sit there and go, "We're well, obviously not working very well, then." Yeah, geez, right? Yeah, because if you're having to fucking work eighteen hours a day to get shit done, what are you doing? And it sounds like a shit job, correct? Yeah. <laughs> but then if you work it backwards and go, actually, I'm being paid how much for that time? My hourly rate now is. Less than whatever. Ah, right? yeah. So, so I look at it the other way, going, you know, there was a a great advert out um, from BT if about ten years ago, which is work smart, not hard. Right. So that's been my absolute kind of <laughs> BT changed your life. <laughs> well, they're, certainly the phrase did, but um, BT changes other things. But you know, that's that's been my whole mantra. Which is, you know, work smart, not hard. Yeah. Um, some people call that lazy. I call that efficient. <sighs> you know, I, I look at it and go, if I can think through a problem to the best of my ability and go 90% of the way there with my product or my service, the last 10% is always client nuanced. Always client nuanced. No matter how well you've built a product, until you get it in the client's hands, mm. you know, you're never going to know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whilst. You know, some of the, the Silicon Valley gurus will say, you know, build the aircraft as you throw, jump yourself off the cliff. Don't necessarily kind of 100% agree with that. Yeah. But, you know, build something at least to float down with as a bare minimum and then start to build out. But, you know, you can't build a Rolls Royce and expect it never to be, you know, changed by, yeah. by clients. Yeah. Um, because clients are the number one thing that the business needs. Yeah. yeah. You know, forget cash. Cash is, and there's, cash there's, is, there's all this glamour. Everyone's like, like, I have to raise. I have to have money. Otherwise, I don't have a real business. It's like, you know, you've got to win customers. That's what we're all here for. Correct. And, yeah. and I think that was, the, that was the big shocker that when I started four years ago, you know, with Microsoft and I, I went to pitch events. You know, everybody was like, I've got to have 500K cash. I've got to have 250K cash. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. And I just asked the one question being on the panel going, you know, why do you need clients? <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, clients give you money and you don't give equity away for it. So, That's, you know, yep. it, just, it just sort of, it's very weird to me because, you know, 30 years ago when I started in business, there wasn't this thing called the cloud. There wasn't all the free credits that were flying around the system. Yeah, yeah. You had to be up and fucking paying for yourself straight away. 
And, you know, this whole startup philosophy was not there in the market. Mm. There were people starting businesses, but they were either spin-outs from larger companies or they were very, very wealthy people starting companies. There wasn't this mentality that, you know, the cloud providers have, have created by giving away credits in the market. You know, the infrastructure to, to start a company back in, back in you know, the 1990s is a hell of a lot different than it is now. Yeah, sure. You know, even even the rigor of starting a company was difficult back then. Yeah. You know, everything's online. Everything can be done quickly. Doesn't mean it should be. And I think this I is you. where this is where I have, you know, I like to question the people that start companies ultimately into uh, why did they start the company? You know, is it a passion, or are you just there because you didn't like your job? What's a good reason? Well. You can have a good reason, but a good reason... But will, what is a good reason? Uh, well, you know, for me, it was always, is there a market gap that I can look at and go, hmm, I could, I could fill that gap and make a lot of money on the way through? Yeah, it's got to be mission-led, right? It's got to be mission-led, yeah. right? Um, and ultimately, because I was mission-led, it became my passion. Yeah, yeah, I get you. Yeah, I'm I'm a very emotive type of person. I live on my emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, good or bad, I have gut feels about things. And if my gut is telling me this is a good thing to be involved in, all of a sudden my gut leads my head and yeah. all of a sudden the passion comes. And that's that's what makes me work seven days a week for two years without taking a holiday and, and you know, not paying yourself and going yeah. through the pain to get to that end point. Um, I like that. I mean, the guys who started Airbnb, they probably weren't passionate about being able to rent their mate's room to stay in on holiday, but you become passionate about it because you've got a mission. So pivoting slightly here, like all good founders, the um, <laughs> so you, you were looking at like, um, what I find so fascinating about your job was that you were looking at more startups of the reactor than based probably anyone else in the world. You're probably yeah. seeing more than anyone else. Yeah. And so you are literally on the absolute knife edge of um, what's happening in terms of technology. Yeah. So this is where you're going to give away your top secrets. <laughs> what's okay. next? Where's the, where's, the smart, where's the smart money now? Where is the trend in the market where you think... If you if you're someone there sat down right now and they're listening and they're like thinking I don't I don't really know where I go do I go into everyone's talking about augment, re, augmented reality AI Bitcoin blah 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 yeah, yeah. where 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 is it where's it going where's the smart where are the best startups coming from so you know I think what you've got to first of all uh, work out in your head and it takes quite a bit of research is what's a buzzword and what's a trend. Okay. Right. Um, so a buzzword is Bitcoin. A trend is cryptocurrency. Okay, got you. So, you know, Bitcoin, everybody jumped into, it was used for a whole bunch of different reasons. It had huge, big, mm. different valuations. And yes, I made a bit of money on that. And, Congrats. you know, um, but cryptocurrency, if you look at what technology is doing to currency, you know, it is migrating from being a paper stroke digital asset into this new world where people can just trade it peer to peer. So so the currencies are trading uh, currencies are changing. So therefore crypto is something that will start to be looked at seriously and is being looked at seriously by you know the financial services industry. If you have a crypto product 
uh, if you think about crypto now uh, versus what it used to be, you could almost create like a crypto pension fund where you can start paying in and you can start to look at how you trade some of that stuff uh, via different asset registers around the world. Yeah. And it, you just have more scale to yeah. what you can do. Um, things that I like uh, I like and start looking at now, uh, you look at you know how technology is changing, how cloud is changing. Um, I look at things slightly differently now where if I was going to create a business, I'd be looking to sell it into one of the big cloud providers. You know, get in, flip, get out. Um, I, I have a because I've seen so many businesses now. I think I've kind of destroyed my my own belief set, <laughs> okay. um, which is which is a fascinating place to be. But um, looking at uh, how I would would start to identify, um, I would look at the size of markets and, and what I could do to enable the cloud providers to be there. So um, one of the things that always used to be a sad thing for me at Microsoft is I'd see founders create great businesses that they were very passionate about, but then I would see where Microsoft's roadmap was going and it would be like, well, you're going to be in trouble in 12 months' time. Because they're going to take it. Because you, know, you will not have the budget to compete against the big boys. We've seen that happen, I know people, yeah. Correct, right? And you know, if you've got an email product, chances are that Microsoft will yeah. some way form have an email product that will compete with you and yeah. if you've got a billion in marketing assets, great. They've got more. Yeah, you know, yeah. So so what I would look at is, you know, just try and find the gaps that the cloud providers are not concentrating on. So, you know, they have a whole plethora about being um, like a, a sheet on a table. They want to cover the entire table. So they want to go broad, but they don't want to go high. So look at point solutions that can take you vertically deep. Um, so if I look at um, industrial IoT. I look at how sensors are going to take over the world. I look at how sensor security is going to become a huge, huge thing. You know, if you've got the right levels of security, you can do you know, so much more with data and the sensors that are coming through industrial IoT. Um, so crypto, industrial IoT, um, and really, you know, I think augmented reality and stuff like that, although interesting's had its, you know, it's, it's kind of been yeah, and done. Sure. Um, I, I see that coming and going. So I've been in technology for 30 years. I've seen VR come 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I've yeah, seen yeah, it back yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, the one that I think is really, really interesting is HoloLens 2. Um, so what? HoloLens 2. Literally no idea what you're talking about. So it's a headset. Um, it's augmented reality. So it's it's you still interact with the present but have the digital overlay. Okay. Yeah. Right? So it's not quite virtual reality, but it's this augmented reality where one intercedes with the other, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, it's really interesting. But again, you know, the headsets are very, very expensive and they've got to, they've got to come down, as they will do. Yeah, yeah, sure. Buy it. So we're at that kind of that, that curve. Um, but I look at um, food technology is going to have to have to kick in. It's going to have to kick in. You know, there's seven, nearly eight billion people on the planet, you know, due to rise to 10 billion. Um, you know, planet management is going to have to to kick in. Um and I see these as being really, really interesting um, opportunities for the right technologists to come along. You know, forget forget the Elon Musks of the world that are trying to conquer Mars and yeah, shit yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, like yeah. that. That's just um, you know billionaire wet dream stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, 
you know, there is a problem. There is a massive problem that the planet is going through a fundamental change. And can technology help mankind map and work through that change? And I think if there's a lot of startups out there, there's a lot of startups looking at doing this. I think if you can, if you can sit in between the ecology of, of the solution and some of the enterprises that, that want to be in that better place, call it corporate social, corporate social responsibility or something like that. Yeah, sure. You have the opportunity to, to really change the paradigm. That's really interesting and actually quite, quite poignant. I think um, that's not what everyone says, and I think you're absolutely right. I can absolutely see why that's the trend. Okay, so we've come to the part of the pod which um, is where we talk about the World Cup. Well, let's, let, I mean, we can talk about the World Cup, but I think like anyone who's listening to this now, I'm predicting that England win the World Cup and New Zealand go out in the semifinals. And um, I'm not predicting that. <laughs> any, any, anyone who's listening to this now, I predict that England win the World Cup and uh, New Zealand go out in the semifinals. You could repeat that <laughs> continually. <laughs> okay. Um, so look, one, one thing that, um, yeah, so the bit of, so two things. One, if you went back over your career as a founder, what would you do differently? Like, what did you learn over that period? And you're like, what the fuck was I thinking? Why didn't I? And you wish you knew it then. Yeah. And secondly, if you had one piece of advice for anyone who is a founder, anyone, what would it be? So start with the first one. What would you do differently? Wow. Um, it's a it's a it's a difficult one because uh, the two answers, the answer to question one and question two, are intricately linked. Mm -hmm. um, I think. The mistakes that I made, and I, and don't get me wrong, I made a f I made a few, I made a lot, right? Of course, um, you know, who doesn't, right? Yeah, um, I tried to do everything myself, and I think that is you have to be incredibly strong mentally to be able to do that. Um, you know, there's been many a times that I've sat up at three o'clock in the morning having plowed a lot of money into something and going, did I make the right decision? Am I in the right, you know, and you've got to, you've got to wake up the next day, switch on, be full of beans and, and attack it again and again and again, right? And, and being a CEO of a, a kind of an emerging company is like being kicked to the teeth daily. <laughs> you, know, you, you made a comment at the start of the podcast about, you know, if you want to learn how to be punched in the face, go <laughs> speak to an MMA fighter, yeah, right? Yeah. If you want to learn about yourself, your emotions, the, the roller coaster, go and speak to an early stage startup uh, CEO, right? You yeah. can't talk to anybody. It's, it's a real kind of um, personal experience. And I think, you know, the... What I've learned is if I'd gone back to myself at 20 when I started my first company, I would say, look, go and find somebody like me now. Go and find somebody that you trust, that can give you solid advice, that can be a mentor to you, a proper mentor, not, mm -hmm. not one of these LinkedIn fuckwits that just sort of name plates and does all that kind of crap, you know, gives you the same advice on... 10 different companies but this is somebody that that you have an intrinsic relationship with that you can start to ask the really poignant questions um, mostly about yourself you know am i ready for this journey do i do i have enough understanding do i have enough intelligence to do this what do i need do i need other people do i need this 
where are the gaps in me mm. that I need to fill in order to to get across the line? And I think those are the those are the types of things that I would go back and talk to my younger self about. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think, you know, nothing nothing ever is is a hundred percent right when we do stuff. Um, we have the best of intentions, but you know. As we know, there's the old adage, you know, the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, everybody has a good intention, but it's really about can you get across certain milestones? And, you know, you need help to do that. Um, you know, that's that's kind of answering both questions at the no, same time. No, but it's really good, and I absolutely agree with you. Warwick, you've been amazing. Always incredibly insightful. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, it's been thanks. a pleasure, and I hope the podcast goes well. Cheers, buddy.